First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and we're going to take this Bible reading over two weeks, so this is part A. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pretty perfect reading for when we have the Gideons visiting us. Um, Wasn't chosen, it's just we've been working our way through, through the book of the Bible and this is where we're up to. So I've given today's message the heading, Leaders Leading in Truth, Training in Godliness. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus said, I am the truth, right? Our Lord, he personifies truth. And, and this is what I love about the gospel. It's true. It's, it's totally dependable and it is unchanging. The gospel, the good news for the first generation of Christians, it continues to be the exact same good news gospel today. And let me tell you, I really, really wish that we could have that sort of truth in every situation in life. To me, it is so frustrating that we've become a society who alter things to fit our agenda. Uh, we create a new, new narrative to reinterpret data or, or to even reinterpret history. And for many, the simple practice of logical, sensible truth-telling has pretty much become a thing of the past. And worst of all, it happens in the church too. The gospel gets reinterpreted in so many different ways to fit so many different agendas 
such that it's no longer the gospel. But this shouldn't come as any great surprise. Even to Timothy in Ephesus, it should have been of no surprise to him because Paul reminds him that the Spirit expressly says, right? The Spirit doesn't just hint at this. The Spirit doesn't leave this open that it's, it's a possibility. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And we might go, oh, that sounds all very alarming, but oh, thank goodness that it's not us because we'd never fall for something like that, like devil worship or witchcraft or whatever it is. You know, like if they're devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, oh, we'd never fall for that. But the thing is, it's much more subtle than that. As we read on, what we realise is that any teaching, any theory, any myth, any old wives' tale that takes one away from the truth of the gospel, whatever causes someone to to reject God's word or, or causes them to embrace something new or different and to be devoted to some other narrative, This is what he's talking about. This is what he's referring to when he's talking about being devoted to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, right? And so it might come across as being something good or as something godly, or or it might be some cause that we're personally passionate about, or or it might be something that, that appeals to our own quest for increased holiness, or it might come across as a better form of holiness, But if it is taking us away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, or if it is taking us away from the very clear commandments of God, it's not only not good, it's demonic. The source of it is from demons. The Spirit expressly says this. Now, because we're working our way through whole books of the Bible, we have been getting reminded of this over and over and over again. Now, as we're being reminded this through the scriptures, this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Uh, The Holy Spirit spoke through Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, So the Holy Spirit spoke through Jesus and he spoke through the apostles as well. Um, So, for example, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 said, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, that's just a few examples I've randomly plucked from the scriptures, examples of the Holy Spirit speaking God's word, warning us of false teachers. But I, I sometimes get asked the question, Michael, do you think a false teacher knows that he's a false teacher? 
are they deliberately misleading people or are they merely misled themselves? Or to use the metaphor of Jesus, does a wolf in sheep's clothing know that on the inside is a wolf and not really a sheep at all? And based on scripture, I actually reckon the answer is there's some of each. Um, let me explain that. The first thing we need to understand is false teaching comes from inside the church. Right? So Peter said, it'll be some of you. In a letter that he'd wrote into, written to a church, that would be pretty cutting to receive a letter like that. Uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing on the outside has every appearance of being a sheep. So in other words, it's a person who fits right on into the church. Uh, and, and their teaching may have an appearance of godliness, and they might even attract lots of followers to them, and people will be devoted to their teaching, and they'll be full-on convinced and probably very excited and very evangelical about what they believe. But the problem is what they believe isn't the truth. Uh, it hasn't come from God. It may appear godly, but if it's not true, it hasn't come from our Heavenly Father. Untruth has its origin in the father of lies. And that's why it's called the teaching of demons. No matter how godly it may appear, if it's not true, it's the teaching of demons. And yet it's coming from inside the church. So, if demonic teaching is coming from inside the church, does the wolf know that he's a wolf? Well, I suspect sometimes yes, uh, but we have it confirmed in today's reading, usually no. Um, I have no doubt that there are frauds and charlatans who know exactly what they are in the Christian church. They act as con men. And as con men, they, they see it as a means to get wealthy or to wield power or to get adoration. And they find people within the church quite gullible targets for them to fleece. And we all know there's plenty of mansions and prestige cars being bought on the donations of the faithful. Con men. But most wolves don't know that they're wolves. Most wolves look very much like a sheep because they believe they are sheep. But how can they get it so wrong? Well, the scripture here tells us. In verse 2, it says, through the insincerity, or hypocrisy is another word for that, through the insincerity of liars, now the liars are, are the wolves, are the false teachers we're talking about, whose consciences are seared. See, what we're talking about here is the overwhelming self-deception of sin. Sin is our rejection of God. Sin is to elevate my own thoughts, my own desires, my own feelings, my own sense of justice even, or my own sense of morality, to elevate even my own intellect above God's revealed truth. That's sin. And the self-deception of sin is that we can become so convinced by reasoning that appeals to us, that appeals to our own flesh, or, or convinced by a teaching, or a theory, or a myth, or an old wives' tale that's captured our attention, 
and we can become devoted to these things. Our consciences accept these things as truth, even if it's contrary to God's word. That's what it means for one's conscience to be seared. Now, some of you may remember we talked about this right at the very start of, of 1 Timothy. In verse 5, he told us that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when we were studying that verse, we, we, we talked about, we, we skipped forward to this verse to see the difference between having a good conscience and a seared conscience. And the difference between having a sincere faith and an insincere faith or a hypocritical faith. Right? So a good conscience is a conscience which is properly calibrated to God's perfect truth and way. And we talked a fair bit about calibration. Do you remember that? We talked about how we calibrate different things and, and how a person might have a clear conscience and that that means that they feel very comfortable that, that they're all right with God. But that doesn't mean they have a good conscience. Their conscience might be clear, but because their conscience isn't calibrated to God, isn't calibrated to God's word, then while it's clear, it's not good. So a seared conscience is a conscience that is blistered. It's out of whack. It's out of calibration. So although it feels right, we can be very wrong because our consciences are not calibrated to God and to God's word. And so many, possibly most, false teachers do not know that they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Why? Because of the self-deception of sin. Their, their consciences are seared. They are so convinced of what they believe because it feels so right to them. And most of us have the opinion that, you know, if it feels right, it can't be wrong. But it is wrong because it's quite different to what the Scripture clearly teaches. And Paul gives us two examples of false teaching that were probably at play in Ephesus in his day. Um, these are examples of heresy or, or wrong doctrine in his day. We'll probably have different examples in, in our culture today, um, although these two examples do still exist. But the important thing for us to understand is these are merely examples, okay? They, they are examples of how deceitful spirits seek to lead us astray in all sorts of ways. The first example he gives is those who forbid marriage, right? Now, he doesn't, doesn't um, say much more on that. and actually doesn't say anything more on that at this point. It's just wrong to forbid marriage. Why? Because marriage is something that God created. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. No longer two, but one. Right? It's God's design. And to teach that one should not marry is against God's design. It's against God's word. And I think it's probably done so because it's trying to add something to our holiness. 
you know what I mean by that? It, it, it's the pride of man that has the belief, I can do something extra to make myself extra holy. And in this case, the extra thing is, well, I'll sacrifice uh, getting married and I'll, I'll live, live without getting married and that'll make me more holy. Still today, the, the Roman Catholic Church forbid pr their priests from marrying and they forbid married men from becoming priests. Uh, it's a false teaching. A and on the basis of this scripture, it's very clearly a teaching of demons. The second example is teaching that certain foods cannot be eaten, right? So some might look back into the, the food laws of Leviticus and say, well, I can get extra holy by not eating bacon for breakfast. Anyone have bacon for breakfast this morning? Oh, I missed out. Um, or I can be extra holy by not eating prawns at Christmas time. <sighs> not sure why anyone eats prawns anyway. Or maybe you might be worried because, oh, the butcher I used to buy the meat from, he's now got this halal sign up in his window, which, which means that, that when, they, when the sheep was killed, it was, it was dedicated to Allah and they had it facing towards Mecca and, and a little prayer was said over it dedicating it to Allah. I can't eat it anymore. Rubbish. God created that food for you. And the fact that somebody else has dedicated it to a false god, that doesn't make that food unclean for you. A pretty common one today is the Seventh-day Adventists. Their statement of belief says that Christians should abstain from unclean foods specified in Scripture. And many in practice um, become vegetarians. Uh, the reason is because they believe that it's more healthy and if they can eat more healthy, then they can be more holy, which is clearly wrong. Jesus told us that it's not what goes into our bodies that makes us unclean, it's what comes out of our mouth that makes us unclean. Right? So to teach that one's diet can add something to our faith, it's not only nonsense. On the basis of Scripture... It's very clearly a teaching of demons. And Paul tells us why. Everything was created by God and it's not to be rejected. We receive our meal with thanksgiving. That's why we say grace at mealtime. Our food that we take into our bodies is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What word would that be? Well, how about the word that, that Jesus spoke to Peter in a dream? Peter was at the, at the home of, I think it was Simon was his name. He was a tanner by trade. And he's up on the roof having a bit of a kip. And he had a dream. And in that dream descended something like a sheet. And on this sheet was all of these animals. And, and, and um, Peter noticed that, that they're all the unclean animals. And, and the word came to Peter, eat up, Peter. Eat it. No, no, I can't do that. And I think a few times this happened. Here's all these unclean things. Eat it, Peter. No, no. And then God said to, to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. Any teaching contrary to this might give an appearance of godliness. If somebody says, oh, I don't eat these foods because... 
You know, back in the Old Testament, it says not to, so I'm going to be extra holy by not eating them. That might have an appearance of godliness, but it's actually demonic. When we say grace before a meal, and I do hope you still do that. I do hope you, you haven't, don't think, oh, I've grown out of that. I'm, I'm old enough now not to say grace, or, or I've become more modern than that. This is a really beautiful thing it, it, for us to pray together, even on your own, when you're on your own, to pray before your meal. It's a prayer recognition of the God who makes us holy and of his gracious provision to us. And it's a beautiful thing, especially for a family, to pray to their Lord around a meal table. Right. So the reason Paul is warning Timothy about false teachings is because it's important for Timothy to be a good example himself in, in, in all godliness, to, to deflect such things. Right? So for Timothy to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or let's extend it, for any pastor, because that's what Timothy in effect was in that church, for any pastor to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're being charged with two things here, to teach truth and to warn against falseness. Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, right? put what things? If you're pointing out false teachings before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And it's all in the context of him training, not only himself, but training the church in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. And so, in teaching, a pastor's job is actually to point out false teaching, wrong doctrine. Now, now let me tell you, that's not going to make a pastor very popular. Um, in my own experience, when you share with somebody in your congregation that actually what you believe is, is false teaching, um, not many people take that well. Uh, but it is our duty to do that. Uh, it is to train in true faith and good doctrine and to have nothing to do with godless teaching that lacks biblical substance. And Paul is quite blunt in how he says that last point. What he says is, have nothing to do with irreverent, or, or other words could be godless or worldly or profane. I think worldly is a good fitting word there, have nothing to do with worldly, silly myths. And the Greek word for silly there literally means old wife. So he is literally saying, have nothing to do with worldly old wives' tales. That's what he is literally saying. By the way, in this context, um, old wives' tales, it doesn't necessarily mean a myth that's passed down from generation to generation, although it can certainly mean that. It's simply referring to a belief that is accepted as true, even though there is no biblical foundation for that belief. Um, and sometimes it might even be contrary to God's word. Right? It, it, it has little substance of truth to it spiritually, and yet it's accepted as true. Now, it was a problem in Ephesus in Timothy's day, and it's certainly a problem in our world today, that some people in the church 
sometimes get distracted from the gospel and they get distracted from what we know is true and they tend to get more passionate about things that may be true, might be true or actually aren't true. They get more, con more concerned and more enthused about worldly old wives' tales. And so a church might focus on things like climate change or global warming or on social or political activism. They might begin to focus on, on questionable prophecies or latest end times fads. Or they might become more focused on, on a program that's going to make my life more fulfilled. Now, we are not meant to focus on any worldly old wives' tales. What are we supposed to focus on? We focus on what we know is true. Faith and the good doctrine. That's enough. Why would we ever be dissatisfied with faith and good doctrine? There's so much to delight in. Why would we want to add anything else to it? And the way that we focus on this is to train in godliness. If we are training in godliness, uh, which is about true faith and good doctrine, and, and, and it's being applied practically in our lives, all of the old wives' tales that the devil was using to try and distract us from what we know is true, we won't pay any attention to those. We don't need that. There's enough, there's enough in what we know is true. Now, it seems to me that, that this is the key verse in this letter. It was written to Timothy as a pastor of that church, telling him to train himself in godliness. But as we read this letter, we realise it's not only Timothy who needs to be training in godliness. We need to be. It's not only your pastor who needs to be training in godliness. We all need to be training in godliness. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so the key verse for us today is about the importance of training in godliness. Have nothing to do with worldly old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for what we know is true. Do you notice the way these two things are really in opposition to each other? Will the old wives' tales, myths, hearsay, theories, versus being trained for godliness by focusing on the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and focusing on the truth, good doctrine, based on God's word. See, when human fiction or theory gets placed alongside godly fact, and when that human fiction or theory becomes for some an article of faith, that's when the church is in a real pickle. And that is why myths are teachings of demons. So let's talk about training. Today, there is a multi-billion dollar industry centred around fitness training. Now, if, if you go to any of the cities around the place, particularly in the wealthier suburbs, 
It seems to me there's almost a gym on every corner, uh, certainly when you get in onto some of the main roads. And the peculiar thing is I always notice the car parks are full. Now, I've never been able to work this out. Why somebody would hop into their car and drive to the gym so that they can then hop on an exercise bike. Why don't they ride their push bike to the gym? Or they'll get in the car and drive to the gym and, and then they'll get on a treadmill. Well, why didn't you just walk or jog to the gym? I, I don't get that, but I'm not a fitness freak, so that's probably why. Anyway, it, it is a massive industry. And of course, where there's a dollar to be made, you know what? There's plenty of Christians wanting to make that dollar too. And so there's plenty of versions of, of Christian fitness training. I did a search on the Krong website, and I came up with 1,200 hits on fitness. Here's a few. Fit for the king, God's plan for weight loss and total health. There you go. Fit to serve, become what you were created to be. In other words, you were created to be fit. Um, the 90-day fitness challenge, achieve your goals in 12 empowering sessions. Um, and, and I even saw a DVD workout advertised there, Praise Moves, the Christian alternative to yoga. Right? There's a massive fitness industry. A a and fitness, it's a good thing. That's why I ride my push bike as often as I can. Not often enough, I know you're all thinking. But fitness is a good thing. But godliness much, much better, much, much better. Verse 8 says, for while bodily training is of some value, now, some's probably actually not the best word. In the Greek, it's really an emphasis on it's of small value, right? So, so what he's saying is for the bodily training is of a little value, a tiny value, but godliness is of value in every way, right? What he's saying is training the body for fitness is of a limited value, but training in godliness is of limitless value. Training in godliness is of value in this present life and for the life to come. Now, in our Australian sport-loving culture, I, I see this happening over and over again parents going to great lengths to ensure that their kids have every available opportunity to fulfill their sporting potential. Seems like every parent wants their kid to grow up to be a sports star and they drive them, drive them all over the countryside to get them to sporting events. Uh, they sacrifice all manner of other activities so that they can make it to every training session and if everything works out possible, perfectly for them and if they had the right body type to start with and and they do all of the training and they do and everything works out perfectly what's the best they can achieve success at an elite level maybe even get an olympic gold medal or maybe become a sponsored athlete and make lots of money through it now i don't know about you but for me as a christian parent I would rather see my children trained in godliness because it helps us to live Christ-like lives and it prepares us for the life to come.
eternal life. And this is why I keep encouraging every one of us in the church, get involved in training in godliness. Keep coming to hear teaching in the church. Get involved in a Bible study group. Make it a priority in your life. And that's why we have the focus of what we do here at church. A major part of our worship is biblical teaching and training in God's word, training in godliness. This is what we do. We're not on about pep talks, about how we can improve our life experience. Our focus is on God's word and being trained for godliness. In verse 10, he says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. We're going to leave it there today. And next week, we're going to continue on with this reading and about what godliness training is actually about. Um, so if you guys want to hear the sequel, you'll have to find us online or come back and visit. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your Spirit who expressly says in your word how we individually and how we as a church should conduct ourselves in godliness. Lord, we thank you that, that even though we get flooded with myths and old wives' tales, that we know your truth and we know the beautiful age-old gospel as it truly is. Lord, by your Holy Spirit and by your word, train us in godliness that we can honour you every day of our lives. Lord, give us a resolve to make this a priority to read your word in private, to study your word together and to pray together. Lord, train us, strengthen us spiritually. And may this not just be merely a head thing. May godliness be demonstrated in the way we think, in what we say and what we do. And Lord, I pray for me because I know that this isn't a situation of do as I say, not as I do. As you said to Timothy, to train yourself in godliness. And Lord, my prayer is me too. Ready us for the day of your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.